Welcome to a very special interview episode of Dads from the Crypt. Today, we're talking to Bill Teitler. He has produced projects such as the first two seasons of Tales from the Crypt, Mr. Holland's Opus, The Polar Express, and the Jumanji series. He's also recently had his directorial debut with 2020's Bad Therapy. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Great to have you. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, let's start with some background. Where are you from? I grew up in the New York area. Okay. Specifically, uh, born in New York City, lived in Queens till I was six, and then we moved to a little suburban town named Port Washington on the North Shore of Long Island. Okay, is that near Huntington? Not too far, a little closer to New York, about 20 miles outside of New York. Okay, yeah, I'm, I was born in Huntington. Oh yeah, there you go. All right, so what were your early artistic influences? Were you in the movies, were you in the comics? Well. I mean, going way back, you know, I was very into, I mean, in, for example, Barbershop, totally into reading comic books. I mean, really madly into comic books. Um, and then at a certain point, I think I segued more into science fiction, you know, into um, all those classic science fiction magazines um, in this. I was born in 1951. So all the classic science fiction magazines of the 50s and 60s and into the 50s and 60s, you know, Galaxy, Galaxy Analog, those those magazines and read, you know, a lot, lot, lot of science fiction. And, you know, horror and science fiction do share common ground, you know, a lot of common ground as well as and fantasy. I was very, you know, I was good fantasy, science fiction, horror, all very much adjacent to each other. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, conceptually. And then I was also very much into photography as I got a little bit older into high school and into college. But I always had, um, you know, continue an interest in in those genres. Okay. And were you were, were you aware of Tales from the Crypt and the whole EC series at that time? I don't Tales from the Crypt. I don't really think so. I mean, it was I was wildly influenced and, and a giant fan of Mad Magazine. Right. Which, which I later, you know, came to understand, you know, that Bill Gaines, after he did Tales from the Crypt and then got into the whole censorship issue in the early 50s with horror, segued into Mad Magazine. And I was, I read every Mad Magazine and I was, you know, complete fan of Mad Magazine. And when I eventually met Bill Gaines, it was really like, wow, what a, what a treat. In fact, we have a, there's a great photo. I don't have it with me right here, but of Joel Silver, Dick Donner, Bob Zemeckis, Howie Deutsch, me, and Bill Gaines. I think when we were shooting the Tales from the Crypt, the, the closing sequence, you know, the, the special effects sequence, and Bill Gaines came to the studio, and I think, you know, in the second, maybe early in the second season of production, it was a total honor. I mean, the guy was his accomplishments were just amazing, totally original, amazing. So I was very much into Mad Magazine, but I think it wasn't really probably until later when I 
I became, I knew about probably EC Comics through Creepshow, probably, you know, that even though it was not an EC comic per se, it was very much, I think, inspired by the EC Comics, George Romero and Steve King. Mm -hmm. Great. And then uh, how did you get into the film industry? (laughs) I was interested in photography. And after I graduated from college, I went out to Seattle for a year intending to be a, you know, be a photographer. And I was taking, you know, photographs, et cetera. And I came back to New York, which was, you know, where I'd grown up. And through a family friend, I got introduced to, you know, into the world of still photographers. And that's, I thought I wanted to get a job as somebody's assistant and, and come up in that route. And I got introduced, got introduced to some great people, uh, great photographers, they all said the same thing. And this is typical of so many fields. There's too many talented still photographers. Go, you know, go here, go there, go everywhere, go into commercials. I don't know anything about commercials. Ah, who Just go figure it out. So I essentially, you know, sort of stumbled out of the comfortable world of photography where I was really knowledgeable and knew a lot. That's redundant, but was knowledgeable and was comfortable. And then just you know, started that process the way many people do um, of how do you get a, a, a break, you know, starting out in the world of, of film. And in New York at that time, there was not a lot of, you know, dramatic stuff. There was some, but TV commercials were a big, that was a big industry. And I started off, I got a job, started off freelance as production assistant on, very, on various commercials, um, met a lot of great people along the way, um, ended up, at Bob with Bob Giraldi, who was a one of the top TV commercial directors, and went on to direct the Michael Jackson famous Michael Jackson video, and we shot, you know, like 175 days, like 150 commercials in a year. Tremendous experience, um, and I was doing everything. You know, I was toting boxes, doing filling out forms, doing everything. And after that, going back to the original contacts I'd had, who turned me on to the world of uh, photographers. I ended up uh, getting a job, being offered a job at Young and Rubicam as a TV commercial producer. Very young. I was like 24. I uh, was very surprised. And that really was my, you know, sort of, I would say, film school part one. And, and it was, you know, very valuable. I met a lot of great people and learned a lot. And then I, did, I stayed, I was at Young and Rubicam, which was a very large advertising agency. Stayed there for about two years. And then freelanced some on the the production house side, which is more like the line producing or production manager side, and some on the advertising agency side, because I'd had experience in both in both ends of the business. In those, uh, and you know, various, you know, cor- I started directing some corporate films for IBM and others. But in the midst of all those various projects I worked on, I came in contact with TV commercial producer who was the sister of Richard Rubenstein, who was the, the partner with George Romero of Tales from the Dark Side. And at a certain point, and I was looking, I was always, I was looking to get into narrative, you know, dramatic filmmaking, but I was, you know, wasn't quite sure how that was going to work. And through, through Ethel, Richard's sister, I was introduced to Richard and we had a good early meeting. They had already produced the pilot of Tales from the Dark Side, which David Vogel produced. And, and Richard, he had a funny, it was a funny thing. He said, well, if you work for advertising agencies and doing commercials, you know quality. And if you've done docs, documentaries, you know how to do things, you know, at a, at a good price. So what, do you want to produce this series? <laughs> and it was 
24 episodes. That was the initial series order. And I was like, oh my God, you know, it was an amazing, obviously an amazing opportunity. But um, one of the first things I did, and it was really in the spirit of self-preservation, but it proved to be a really, you know, a good, a good suggestion was divide the 24 episodes into two halves, half to be done in LA, I suggested, and half to be done in New York. And I would produce the New York, I would be involved in help with the development of all the, the scripts, but I would produce only the 12 in New York because I figured, okay, I can make it through 12, 24 just seemed way, you know, way daunting. And that turned out to be a great experience in preparation for that. Because then that, that was really horror as opposed to science fiction or fantasy. Among other things, I read Steve King's great book, D- Dance Macabre. Have you read that? I haven't read that one specifically. Uh, it's a it's a book about horror fiction. You know, it's 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 a book about the genre. And oh, it, yeah. I, I read that really carefully, probably several times. And then the other funny thing uh, that also relates to Tales from the Crypt in the um, in the commercial world, I also I met a guy named Richard Greenberg. You may have heard of him. Very you know, brilliant title designer. Um, did the initial did the titles for um, Alien, you know, the very famous title sequence and, and type design for Alien. He also worked with Dick Donner on Superman, Superman and other things um, and Joel Silver. And he ended up directing a Tales from the Dark Side. We became good friends. So then flash forward a few years and Tales from the uh, Dark Side was done. I, I produced it for four years, developed, been involved in developing about altogether 90 scripts and I'll make this one note, the ratio of scripts developed to scripts produced was 100%. 90 episode, ninety scripts developed, 90 episodes made. Wow. And if you looked at Tales from the Dark Side, very broad range of stuff. But it, but it was very much, and in, as I was doing that, I, I totally, I've seen Creepshow. I was then became aware of Tales from the Crypt, you know, its origins, um, it's the previous movie and I think it was 1972, probably Hammer film, I'm not sure. And then that was over, Tales from the Dark Side. And I was kicking around, I did a few things, but I hit a point in my career where not much was happening. And my wife suggested, why don't we go out to LA and just, you, we can kind of check that out. So at that point, I'd been to LA a few times doing commercials, but I really knew nobody in the film business whatsoever. And Richard Greenberg, my friend, he did know a few people, including Joel Silver and Dick Donner. And he gave, so I went out to LA with this tiny little list. There might've been one or two other people in addition to Joel and Dick, but they were really, you know, they were really the, the, the main ones. And I spoke, you know, called Joel, left a message, no response, not surprisingly, not surprising. Second time, called him, left a message, no response. And I can still remember we had rented, and this shows how out of it we were about LA geography. We'd actually rented a house, a little house in Palos Verdes, which uh-huh. is so far. You live in LA, right? Yeah, I live in Pasadena. Okay, well, Palos Verdes, you know, is like so far mm-hmm. out of, out of the, the, the mainstream. But I can still remember in this little house we rented in, in, in Palos Verdes, looking at my little file facts, and I had two checks next to Joel's name, and I thought, can I call him again? And it was like, well, what the hell? I mean, what do I lose? You know, okay. I ring it up and uh, Joel's then assistant, Suzanne Todd, who's gone on to a spectacular career producing as a producer. 
she listened to my my pitch and which was even a more heightened because I knew this was number three. This was three and out for sure. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, that's nice. You know, she was very polite, very nice, but basically don't hold your breath. But she was very polite. I'll talk to Joel. So what was your pitch or what was the concept? I was, uh, you know, Richard Greenberg. I'd done Tales from the Dark Side. You know, the, the something, there was no so, pitch in terms of a story. So you were pick- you're pitching yourself, not a, not a specific project. Oh, yeah. Pitching myself. Yeah. I wanted to meet Joel because, you know, he was an important person in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I knew no one. <laughs> so surprise, surprise, the phone rings the next day. Suzanne, Todd calling me back. Joel would like to see you. I was like, whoa, whoa. Three o'clock that afternoon. <laughs> so drove up to Burbank. First time on a studio lot. Warner Brothers the water tower, mm-hmm. you know, Casablanca, you think of all of the amazing things that have occurred under that lot. And I walk into Joel's office, building 90 on this Warner's lot classic. I think it might've been Frank Sinatra's bungalow. And his then, the person who answered the phone, receptionist, Jennifer Todd, Suzanne Todd's sister, who's also gone on to a magnificent producing career. And both of them, great people, incredibly successful, talented people. Said, yes, Joel, I'd like to see you. So I sat in the waiting room, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Does he want to see me? He wants to see you. I go out, I walk around the lot. I come back 3.45. Yeah, he wants to see you. 4.30, walk around the lot some more. Does he really want to see me? Yeah, he'll see you. So at that point, the alternative is, okay, I can get, my options are, I can get in my car and drive back through rush hour traffic from Burbank to Palos Verdes. God knows that was not an attractive prospect. Or I could just wait basically till they threw me out. Mm-hmm. of the office. Sure. Uh, and I waited there. I, you know, what did I have to lose? And about quarter of six, and I'm not exaggerating, quarter of six, Joel will see you now. And I got, I met Suzanne briefly. I got ushered into Joel's office, which was just amazing, you know, great artwork and a big desk and just, you know, phenomenal. And he said, and after a minute or so of, you know, pleasantries, he said, so you, you produced that show Tales from the Dark Side? Yeah. Um, well, I'm doing the show Tales from the Crypt. And he gave a little bit of tiny bit of background. Are you interested in possibly producing it? I was like, "Uh, yeah, yes. Okay, go see. I think Riley Ellis was then his director of development. Go see Riley. We'll figure it out. And all this was happening during the Writers Guild strike. So really, it was the least good time to be in Hollywood. Maybe it was the best time to be in Hollywood because no one was doing anything. So I, I went home or went back to the house in Palos Verdes, just kind of like, wow, did that really happen? But, you know, it had been an amazing, great, you know, great experience. And then the Writers Guild strike dragged on for easily another month, maybe a month and a half or more. And then one day, totally out of the blue, I'd I'd almost really pretty much, I thought that must have just been a fantasy. That was never (laughs) happened, you know? Yeah. In late September, uh, this would be 1988, I got a call, Suzanne called, Joel Silver calling, and I waited. He got on the phone. I said, oh, you know, so Tales from the Crypt's happening with the strikes over. You should go meet Bob Zemeckis. I said, you know, call Bob Zemeckis. So if I call Bob Zemeckis, he's going to take my call. Yes, he's definitely going to take your call. What was the concepts of that they had when you got there? What were they? The, the, they I believe there were the three scripts that were the first three ones produced. Uh, and they probably had some other ones in development. I don't remember exactly, but the incre- so I then the incredible thing, and I was I had already had plans to go to California 
this is, I was about to leave for California when I got this call from Joel to go to Northern California to do, of all things, an episode of America's Most Wanted. <laughs> so I went up there, I, I did that. And then I came down to LA to meet Bob Zemeckis. And I was still like, wow, is this guy really going to see me? Yeah. Bob's office was on the Universal lot in a great bungalow adjacent to um, Amblin, you know, Steven Spielberg company. I met with Bob. We spent about an hour together, if I recall, you know, a good long time. And just I, obviously I was a huge fan of his work. Um, I was pretty knowledgeable about it. And we really, you know, we really, we had a good, good rapport. We hit it off. And so a couple of things occurred after that. One was the decision was made that since we had some kind of green light from HBO to do it, that the first episode would shoot, this is plus or minus October 1st, around November 1st would be the first episode <laughs> would be shot. And they had a, it was a really good script, the Fred Decker script. And Bob, you know, he, he was still developing it. He was still working on it. And again, I'll remember uh, a, a moment that is always, you know, always going to be in my, my, in my mind of like great, great moments of, because I'd, I'd had a lot of experience developing half hour scripts with Tales from the Dark Side. And I love the script that Fred had written and that Bob had supervised, which was, and all through the house, the, mm. the psycho Santa Claus and the, the, the murderous w- woman. And when I read it, I just, when Bob and I were meeting to talk about it, I just had one question. You've seen the episode, obviously. Oh, yeah. That at a certain point, I said, you know, one thing, Bob, I wonder about is that you've, you've set up this great situation with, with the girl, you know, who's upstairs in the bedroom, but then we don't, we don't see her at all until the very end. It feels like that's something that could be, you know, there could be something more to be had. And he said, and this is, again, this is the moment that I'll never forget. He said, in a classic Hitchcock movie, in a classic Hitchcockian movie, the, the main character would be enclosed in a space where they can't, they, they can't, they can only just see something, but they can't get out. And he said, so what if, and then he describes, so she gets caught in the closet. Mm-hmm. She looks, she looks out the window. She sees, what about, she sees Santa Claus with the ladder and she's beating on the door and she can't get out. But at that moment, you know, because Bob was so absolutely, you know, knowledgeable, familiar with the, the, every bit of the la- the grammar, you know, the language of, of, of screenwriting and filmmaking. But he just instantly framed this in classic Hitchcockian terms. And that moment just always stayed with me. Larry Drake is such a, a versatile actor. Yeah. And like he, but he had already won Emmys uh, for LA Law. So how did you see him playing as this this kind of gentlemanly actor playing a psychotic Santa Claus? You know, the casting is, is, is kind of a miracle, you know, and I say a miracle, I mean, it's, it's so dependent on the chemistry, the, 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 and a, a, a great story, a great character, a director who has a certain vision. There's a, a, a great casting director, a pool of actors that are interested, you know, it's a, there's a lot of different factors in that, let's call it, you know, it's like a gumbo or something, you know, but a lot of factors. And we knew from the start, and it was really wonderful that um, Mary Ellen Trainer, who was Bob's then wife, was going to play the, the female lead. And then Karen Ray, who was our casting director and in conjunction with Bob, they, I don't know the, I don't remember the exact details of how Larry Drake got, you know, came into it, but he was obviously great casting. Um, not only was he, 
you know, it was something very different for him. You know, he played such a different uh, part and to work with somebody of, uh, you know, of Bob's stature and obvious amazing talent. I'm sure that was the draw. Well, I, I love the symmetry of, you know, starting off. And this is obviously the chronologically it was the second episode, but it sounds like this is the first episode that was made. It was the first episode that was produced. Yeah. Right. And then the last episode of season two also has Larry Drake as the most opposite character, as you can imagine, as the kindly um, butler servants who's trying to save the boy in the end of uh, The Secret. So in the first episode, you have him trying to yeah. murder this family. In the second one, yeah. you have him saving it. I, I love the, the symmetry of that. That was, that was uh, yeah, a, a lot of miles down the road, mm-hmm. you know, amazing amount of amazing amount of, of amazing amount of stuff that happened between point one and point two, but you're absolutely right. I only, I believe we only really had a commitment to do initially the one episode. It was, it was essentially the pilot episode and it was, so I, that's why I think of it as episode one. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason when I, when we started this whole podcast, for some reason I was expecting that to be the first episode in my head. It was the first episode. I don't know if I watched it in a certain sequence. Yeah back in the day but so let's go talk about the first up the first episode uh the man who was death yes um, which again is a great way to like kick off the entire series that is you know about the macabre and about this kind of morbid fascination with death and before we get to that i just do have to tell one other anecdote oh, again go ahead. moments so we we shot the episode and the shooting went well bob you know all of we had just, you know, Dean Cundy shot it. We had, you know, great, really top flight, everyone working on it um, as because they were part of Bob's team. And then we finished it. It was edited. Bob edited it. And then we needed to show it to HBO. And I, I was designated to be the person who would be there in the screening in New York at HBO. So we were literally, uh, I think it was, we were literally in the final transfer of the, of the show Right, right on the edit and putting the pieces together. I was on a, a night flight, a, a red eye flight on this night. And still at like 5 p.m., we were putting the finishing touches on it. So I took the film, you know, took that was video, took the video under my arm, got on the plane, went to HBO the next day. And when we screened it, and you, you know the episode very well, the moment when the husband, she's hit over the head and then three or four minutes later, he comes, he suddenly lurches back to life and kind of jumps up at her. And literally you could see like um, Michael Fuchs, who was then the, the head of HBO, you could literally see there was like air under his chair. He jumped up so much at that moment. At that moment, I just knew this thing's a winner. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, when you did, when you brought that to them, did you have the Crypt Keeper segments done or that later? Uh, no, that was, that was later. And early on, actually, before we produced the first, before Bob shot the, the all through the house, the first thing that Bob and I did was to go and meet with Kevin Yeager, um, who was who had a lot, tremendous amount of experience in that and kind of make a key decision, which was, you know, really Bob's, you know, his direction was really smart not to have an actor in makeup, rather to have a you know, let's call it a puppet creature, you know, a, a, which gave you an opportunity to do things that were weirder and more idiosyncratic. And I think the Crypt Keeper sequences is still, you know, which Kevin directed throughout the whole thing, at least through the time I was there, you know, they were just, 
a, a joy and hilarious to watch. Um, oh, yeah, that's I think ninety percent of the success of the show is just based on that character. And then also the 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 decision to, in exactly the style of the Tales from the Crypt comics, to have the comic book covers. So we had a consistent stylistic uh, approach of first the Crypt Keeper, then he opens the book. You actually you see the illustration and then zoom into it and start the show. And that, that was that was a really key key series of key creative decisions that gave the series a consistency and something that you could always look forward to that. And then of course the ending, you know, the the, the credit sequence, end credit sequence, which Danny Elfman scored. <sighs> yeah. I will never, you know, again, never that's always in my mind. And just an exciting way to wrap it up. I, what I think is amazing is that you brought that episode to HBO of All Through the House without the um, the beginning and the ending, without without the wraparounds, and just on the strength of just that episode that they that they wanted to move forward. But then when you put that extra layer of the Crypt Keeper on top of it, it just it just takes it to a whole another level. But it's just amazing how it shows how strong the episodes was without that iconic character. Uh, based on its own merits. You know, it's architecturally, and, you know, Fred Decker, really terrific screenwriter, and, and with Bob's input, it's just so ingeniously constructed. Mm-hmm. It's so both surprising, scary, satisfying, and, you know, you really, you know, it accomplishes right off the bat what was, you know, one of the signature elements of the thing, identifying with somebody who was basically had just done something horrible mm-hmm. and creating sympathy for the horrific, you know, in, in the horrific, there was no value judgment of like, Oh, murdering somebody is bad, <laughs> but there are also morality tales. Mm-hmm. And this is very much true. Both of the things I'm saying are true in the original comics. Cause we, we really, you know, we're stayed pretty, we were faithful, not literally always faithful, but really pretty faithful to the storylines in the comics. And that identif- being able to identify with people doing pretty heinous things at times mm-hmm. and pretty strange things, but also in the end, just desserts. Um, they are morality tales. So going back to some of the uh, mechanics of the show. Uh, so again, I'm only... I'm watching these, uh, you know, on the DVDs and, you know, after the fact. So I'm noticing that in the first season, there's only the credit sequence of the, you know, the little miniature house you kind of zooming out of with the music. So was that, was the opening sequence not done for season one? Uh, what, what is the, tell me, remind me with the, so the opening where it starts off with the gate and then it kind of zooms in through. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, I, no, no, I think we had both. We, okay. we had both. You know, and I, I, you can maybe you can tell me. I don't know the answer why they're only available in really cruddy YouTube. Um, God bless YouTube because I was able to you know to look at them again. Some of them were better quality than others, but none of them had the opening, which was really iconic. The house, mm-hmm. Richard Edland and his and his group did that, and and they also did the end. The end was also the the opening was in a miniature, mm-hmm. and and the end was uh, a live action a live action you know, set um, then leading to a miniature um, I believe pretty sure yeah it had to be but some I guess somewhere I must have cassette v- VHS cassettes of it I don't even have DVDs of it can you buy DVDs now um on eBay 
on eBay. Yeah, some of them might not be you know legit. Might they might be knockoff or. Uh, but do you know from having done research what you you alluded to that there was a rights issue. Do you have any idea why they're not in distribution? Right. Um, so we've we, we've we're trying to figure out a lot of the stuff out, but basically it seems the rights are somewhat tangled between EC Comics, between the Gaines Estate, between Silver Productions, between uh, HBO. Oh. So I think I think because there's so many. Um, elements and, and different properties that went into this and also kevin yeager has certain rights to the, to the character so i think so many different people have pieces of the pie that it's it's a kind of a quagmire mm-hmm. and i know there was something where the some of the uh rights defaulted back to the gains estate um recently but it's unclear to the what extent mm-hmm. um so they're trying to figure that out so legally, uh, you cannot produce or distribute the show, is my understanding, or stream it at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting is I think if you go to the DVDs, the official DVDs, for the first season, it does not have the opening uh, credit sequence. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, when you go to YouTube, it's not there for the first season. And for some reason, on the second season, that pops up. So I'm wondering, for some reason, on the DVDs, I don't know for sure why. I don't know. I, I do think, I do think... I, I'll just say, I don't know, rather than spread misinformation, but then, you know, just segueing into, um, as you were starting to say, into what's actually called episode one, mm-hmm. which was the second episode, I believe, that was produced, Walter Hill's episode, The, the Man Who Was Death, I think, mm-hmm. and was A Man Who Was Death, I think. Is that the title? The Man Who Was Death, yeah. And it's just, you know, if you just look, if all you were going to do was just look at the first three minutes of that episode, the opening shot, you know, Walter, you know, and, and uh, the cinematographer, I think John Leonetti, um, and Rye Cooter's music. It's so cinematic. And I think that's another thing that was really a quality that we, I won't even say aspired to, because these direct, the directors who directed these things were ma- cinem- you know, master, master storytellers in, in, as in film in feature filmmaking. So of course they were cinematic, but I think it was really the exception to the rule that a half hour episode like this could be cinematic. Mm -hmm. These things are so, these episodes are so cinematic. And I think that beginning of, of Walter's episode where Bill Sadler's introduced and the, the whole, the whole uh, dolly shot through the, through the prison, through the, the jail, as the, the prisoners being led to the electric chair. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, and the music also, music, Ry Cooter, spectacular, you know, great composers. And then again, it's, you are identifying, I think, with Bill Sadler, but what happens at the end? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sets the tone for the entire series, for seven years worth of shows in like 30 seconds. And, and Bill Sadler, I thought, gave, I mean, it's a great performance. I mean, just a great performance. Right. Were you part of the casting for that uh, that role? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think my memory is, uh, I was certainly, I, I was, it was the, the first three shows, I'm, I'm sure I was involved with it, but it was, they were more bespoke, you know, in terms of, they were separated by time. You know, there was like, there were big gaps in time. I'm sure as we got into episodes four, five, and six of season one, yeah, I'm sure I was. And then second season, for sure, all the time. 
but I, I know that like Bob had a clear idea in his mind. And I, I don't remember per se having readings for the Bill Sadler role. But again, this is a long time ago. You know, this is like 30 plus years ago. So some of the absolute details are a little bit uh, sure, a, a little vague. Well, we had talked to we have we've had Bill on the show and um, he said that he actually read for a different role. And I was going to the parking lot, the casting director, I think Karen Ray came out and said, hey, read for this one. And yeah, so so I'm sure I, I probably then I would I would have been there because I was working with Karen and you know, she was the casting director. Yeah. And, and he was, you know, he just totally nailed it. Were there other people that were considered? I'm sure there were. I, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you who they might be. Sure. I mean, meaning uh, if I if I if I knew, I would tell you, but I don't I just don't remember. And why was uh, the why did they decide to put this episode first or air this one first? Do you know? That's a really good question. Honestly, I don't know. I wonder if they did. Well, I wonder if they put the Christmas one first. People would think it was like a holiday series. Could be. You know, I, we were all. I mean, very involved with HBO. You know, they were. They were. Uh, they supervised. You know, in a very, you know, closely. That we had a great uh, ex- exec there, creative exec Sasha Emerson. Chris Albrecht was who was running. Was the overall creative guy, top guy, and all their. You know, they were. It was a real collaboration on everyone's part. I mean, they were very involved and very supportive. Again, a lot of the stuff, uh, those decisions, I just don't remember the details of. So how much input did HBO and EC Comics even um, have into the shows? Well, HBO approved the scripts. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they, you know, they, they gave advice. I think they also, my memory is they were pleased with the, with the, le- with the creative, with the level uh, you know, and the, with the creative quality. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're really pleased with the creative quality of something, you don't have to have a heavy hand. Right. You know, when you get something, somebody like Bob Zemeckis, who's arguably one of the great directors, you know, of our time, um, a great script, great production value, you know, production values in that show are superb in, in and all through the house. And it's true throughout. So I, I think they they gave intelligent approvals and feedback, but I, I think they were happy with how, how it was going. And I think it also, it fulfilled what the mandate was in their mind. So they didn't have to have a heavy hand with it. Uh, that's always nice. It was, it was very, very collegial. Um, now, t- now the show itself has always been known for pushing boundaries of content, violence, and sexually. Um, were there any lines that HBO mandated you not cross? Well, not really that I can remember. I mean, certainly, you know, when you look at episode five with Amanda Plummer, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't look out of place today. Right. But, I mean, first of all, her performance. Oh, yeah. Stunning. I mean, stunning, absolutely stunning. And, and you know, I think it, I think it was it wasn't like breaking any, any lines of content that hadn't been seen before, but it was right. You know, it was going right up there, you know, and it was, it was, um, but, but not in any way that, that was crossing any lines. And, but, but even more to the point, if they were going to have an issue, you would think it would have been with the end of episode five um, with the, with the, the ax and <laughs> cutting, you know, the, all the, the ax and the blood. And I, you know, 
I don't really remember a lot of pushback. Maybe there was like, oh, could you tone it down a little bit? Maybe. I'm not even saying that was the case. But, we got to, you know, I remember thinking like, whoa, we are definitely pushing the envelope here. Right. Well, I mean, the, the irony is, I, uh, I obviously remember at the time, it was like, wow, this is this is really going there. But, you know, watching it through now, <laughs> through our lenses now, like, oh, this is this is nothing. This is like, yeah. this is almost PG-13 in, in some episodes. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. And it's also, again, it's stylized. Yes. And, and I think that there's a big difference when you're talking about stylized violence than, than, uh, than when you're talking about really visceral, realistic horror. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're just different. They have different effects. They have different qualities. They have, there's different reactions. You know, you can kind of distance. You understand that the violence, I think, generally has portrayed, at least in the episodes of Tales from the Crypt that I produced, you don't you know that their narrative it's a it's a story narrative that you feel you can be comfortable in and it's not really really pushing you to anything that's really so horrible you know right it's only half an hour so you know it's 20 minutes to 30 minutes you yeah. know um but i i don't i don't remember a lot of let's just you know sent let's call it for lack of a better word censorship i don't remember any honestly i, I really feel it was like we we followed the, we had a beacon, you know, in the comics, mm-hmm. we had a, we had great, the great, you know, the, the, the team, the executive producer team, the proprietors of the show, Dick, uh, Joel, Dick, Walter, Bob, and David Geiler were all incredibly creative, creative and accomplished people, artists, mm-hmm. and, and, and who we were all on the, we were all on the same, on the same wavelength. Right. Those are also people you don't really say no to very often. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to, you know, you you you. Like my, my point about like uh, my comment, my it wasn't a comment. It was really a question to Bob about the the daughter upstairs. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just I in my own head as I was sitting with him having this story conversation. I must have said five times to myself, "Should I say anything at all?" You know, and then I said, you know, so I was probably timid or very, you know, in putting out the suggestion, but then his reaction, you know, framing it in, in terms of classic Hitchcock, that was like postgraduate tutorial 907 is like, here's the great filmmaker of, of our time talking about the classic Hitchcockian device. And you just sit there and go, wow, this is the ultimate. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about Dig That Cat, which is my, my personal favorite of the first season. So um, it's such a fun episode. <laughs> every scene has something fun, like a joke, pretty much. Every scene, every scene is kind of like a build up to a joke in the punchline. Well, Dick Donner, you know, there is an electricity to, to dig that cat. And Dick, great sense of action, as you say, great sense of comedy. And he always, you feel, you know, like he, he knows how to be one step ahead of the audience, mm-hmm. but really leading, leading them on in a way which is literally, you know, which is like Robert Wool come into the carnival. Dick's direction, I think, in the next meta level, was saying to the viewer, "Come, come into our story." And Joe Pantoliano, oh, yeah. <laughs> great performance. But also, you know, Dick, with his background, which you know, starting out in, and I'm not even, you know, but certainly a lot of experience in TV before he became a like top, top, top feature film director. But I can remember the first day we were on the set with him. And then that was, I believe, the third episode. Yeah, that we uh, that we shot. 
and on the set, I mean, I, I had spent a lot of time in the editing room doing on Tales from the Dark Side, but in terms of his his knowledge and his just his absolute knowledge, bedrock knowledge of filmmaking technique, as he we into the scene where I think you know I believe the first scene we shot, but this might I might be wrong, but was the shot where Joe Pantoliano is discovered in the the alleyway. Right. Yeah. You know, by the whatever his name is, the the the, the bad Manrick or Heim, whatever his name is. And Dick walking on the set and saying, OK, so we'll start with the wide shot here and then we're going to do overs, then we're going to do close. And he saw the whole thing from a film production, from a from a film storytelling standpoint in breaking it down in terms of like the language of how you make a film, how you shoot a scene. It was a masterclass in how to shoot a scene. And it was just like uh, he was as comfortable in the language of filmmaking as as, you know, as anybody could be. Amazing thing to watch. And again, it was like, whoa, mm. <laughs> whoa and wow. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's just there's so much detail in that episode that gets me. And I love the carnival, the kind of the, the roving carnival is such it just fits so well with the Tales from the Crypt concept of, you know, these oddities and the macabre and come, yeah. come over here, little kid, come, come look in this tent and see what creepy thing we have to show you that you'll never, that you won't see anywhere else that, you know, might scar you for life or might, you know, you can go tell your friends about. Well, again, in a way, in a sort of a box within a box, Robert Wool is, is another iteration of the Crypt Keeper. Yes. You know, in terms of leading and Pantoliano is, you know, is, is talking about, He's also narrating. There's there, but I think particularly Robert Wool is like uh, an interior crypt, you know, voice of like the crypt keeper is in the outside the frame of the actual episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know what I mean? Yeah, that totally makes sense. That's that's very satisfying and very engaging because he's reaching out to you to you the audience, mm-hmm. not 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 just you know not just to characters that are in the room, but He's saying, come in, come on, come to see this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, too, and they're both chewing the scenery. <laughs> it's just so great to watch oh. them like chewing the scenery on each uh, playing off of each other and just taking it to a whole other level. But again, chewing the scenery is what a carnival yes. guy would would be doing. That's his mm-hmm. job. That's his job, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I thought that, that was a a great performance, really fun to watch and a great performance. And, and I thought, you know, the production value of all of that, those, we've just talked about pretty much the first three shows, the production values of all three of those shows were really strong and also were quite different. You know, they, they had just different, different styles of filmmaking, not filmmaking, but just different styles. And each one of which was, you know, really fun to watch. You know, you never felt like you were confined in a box, you know? Right. It's, On Tales from the Dark Side, we were always Tales from the Dark Side was two characters, four characters, two rooms, mm-hmm. or two characters, two rooms, or the George Romero episode of Dark Side, one character, one room. So to be so to be able to be in a you know in a world which was more expansive than that was was very was very fun you know to work to work with. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's the episode Sin Deep with uh, Leah Thompson. Great. Which is another great. So tell me about. I'm 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 fascinated by the by when actors that are known for playing a certain type decide to go very against type. And I think that's one of the things that Tales of the Crypt does great is gives those actors a chance 
to really get out of their box in their comfort zone. Yeah. Well, Leah was is married to Howie Deutsch, who mm-hmm. directed it. Howie was somebody who knew Joel and Dick very well. Certainly, knew, I believe both of them. And I met him probably when we were editing. Maybe maybe we were in the finishing stages of uh, of Dick's show, and really liked him. You know, he had a great background in, in trailers and in other filmmaking things. Uh, and then that was a that was a you know again Fred Decker wrote that script. I, we knew Leah, you know, that Howie was going to direct it and Leah was going to star in it. You know, that one I think is even a little more, you know, in a sense, I won't say, you know, there's just, it expand, it continues to expand the repertoire of what was possible within the, the, the format. That's not too abstract. No, that makes, yeah, each of these episodes definitely goes in different places and different scales. Was Leah game to play this very different character? Was totally, totally game. She's a great person. Really, you know, I think it was a, a fun opportunity also for them to work together. And and I think ultimately, you know, as and once again, you know, the we are identifying with her, mm-hmm. even though we see her shooting the boyfriend. Oops, spoiler. Um, <laughs> if you haven't seen them by now. 30 years later, spoiler alert. But at the end, when she, when, and also, you know, she had to go through a lot of, of makeup, you know, for, for the later, you know, the last few minutes, the last, last several scenes. And the, you know, the transition, you see a little transition when she starts to look a little older and she's dabbing herself with all of the, all of the makeup stuff. But then when you see her, after she's she's when she's in the back of the um, of the pawn shop, mm-hmm. and she was really like, you know, old you know old lady, or you know, whatever you want to whatever word you want to use right. to describe. But and then the but the poignancy uh, of her carrying out the the um, the mask, if that's what you want to call it, or the casting mm-hmm. of her face. And then bump, and then getting knocked over, and getting, and it smashes. And the 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 girl, the woman who was her her, you know, beside her in the street in the beginning, basically says, get out of the way. I don't remember the exact dialogue, but mm-hmm. get out of the way, you old whatever. Do you remember the exact dialogue? I, I don't remember the, the exact line, but yeah. But then, then you just see her, the Leah character, just trying to piece together the the pieces as the camera rises up. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's heartbreaking. And then a la Naked City, you know, you then see the big, big crane shot, as it were, you know, showing the shot in downtown L.A. and just showing like, OK, I mean, it wasn't New York specifically, but it's the same notion of just one story <laughs> in this giant, you know, sort of crazy, crazy city. Yeah, no, that, that, that's just heartbreaking. But yeah, and again, I, <laughs> we we're talking about this on the episode, how Leah Thompson, everyone seems to want to put her in makeup because, again, for the like the Back to Future movie, she's playing old and young. And she, she has a great ability to act through prosthetics. She was comfortable and familiar with it. You just, she was so always so sympathetic, you know? She Even no matter what, it was always, she always created a level of sympathy and, and there was always a certain kind of comedy. But also there was real gravitas, you know? Mm-hmm. I think in, in where she went as a character in that episode. Yeah, she commands the screen. She owns oh, it. She she totally owns it. Episode five, in terms of owning the screen, again, Amanda yeah. And and one interesting, you know, note, I had actually forgotten 
that Michael McDowell had wrote written that episode. Uh, do you know his work? Uh, I'm, no, I'm sorry, Dio, but I'm blanking on the name for the moment. But once Michael I, McDowell, I mean, later known for Beetlejuice, and, okay, and for Nightmare Before Christmas. But he was somebody who, when we were doing Tales from the Dark Side, uh, the, our, our, we were, our story department was was looking actually for. There's another very talented fantasy horror writer named Michael, I believe it was K-U-B-E McDowell, something like that, Kubi mm. McDowell, who wrote an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. But mistakenly, they reached out to Michael McDowell, who was already an accomplished horror writer with, I think he, he wrote a series of novels, I think they're called Blackwater, I think. Um, Black River, Blackwater, something like that. And... Michael McDowell, who had never written, I don't believe, anything for the screen before that, wrote, um, if you've ever seen Tales from the Dark Side, he wrote the episode, the first episode that Tom Savini directed called Inside in the Closet or in, Inside the Closet, I think. It was a phenomenally brilliant script. And he went on to write half a dozen Tales from the Dark Sides. And so he then, I don't know, if I brought him into this, I don't remember whether Nina Jacobson, I think who was then the, the, the development executive with Joel's company or whether conceivably HBO, but I saw that Michael McDowell, and I, again, ashamed to say I'd forgotten it, but um, was the writer of um, Lover Come Hack to Me. And the construction of that story is genius. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just... You know the 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 story with the nightmare within the story, um, that that whole thing, and again Amanda Plummer, who who seems like such a kind of in a sense a victim to begin with, and who totally turns the tables. Yeah, and again that's like you're just waiting for that guy to get it. <laughs> you know, exactly. Exactly. You're so looking forward to it, but when it actually happens, you you know, you get the double, you get the double horror ending. First is the, the, what turns out to be a, a dream mm. or something like it, a nightmare, a dream. Um, but then his own, it, it's a, 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 it's a, a dream that foretells what's going to happen. What's going to happen to him. You mm. know, it's a, become a prophecy of his own future. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty high concept too, which is kind of cool. It's and that I think again that was I I haven't looked at the original comic and I imagine that could well have been probably was within the in the within the original comic, but what if it wasn't? Uh, you know, it, it was just a great invention, um, and and that was that was one where there was you know again different tonalities you know tonalities of a little more erotic romantic mm -hmm. twisted romance. The gothic, you know, the, in the house, the the gothic house, uh, that that episode, I think, and then of course the very, you know, the the very violent ending by very violent by the standards of those times. Right. But my memory of it had been more like, if I was going to say, if, if we had had this conversation before, I'd looked back on some of the on the episodes, I would have said half the episode was the last forty five seconds. Right. In fact, it it really is just. It's just the client. It's just at the end, mm -hmm. and the rest of it is is really like a very a great narrative web mm -hmm. that's being spun for the audience. 
Yeah, that's an interesting observation because, again, I saw a lot of these when I was a kid, for, yeah. better, for better or for worse. So a lot of the, going back to these episodes, and I've seen most of them, you know, since then, but the part that always come the strongest with me is the, you know, the last minute of the episode. And I'm watching these, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember all this stuff now, like uh, Corman's Calamity. Oh, you know, I, I remember the, the, the ending part where the monster comes out just like the wife. And that's again, that's the part I remember. I didn't remember, you know, when uh, all the other stuff happening before that, but that's the part that like is the whole episode of my was the whole episode of my head. Well, they all, you know, and that's one of the things that's interesting when you look at them again. The, you know, there's it's can be a there can be a different race, they have different ratios of setup. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be you could kind of clock in each one, like in all through the house within the first 45 seconds, I'm going to guess, there's only a minute, the, the horror has started with the ax coming down on the head of, of Marshall Bell. Others, there's a much longer lead-in, which is basically dramatic, mm -hmm. you know, character exposition dramatic, and it's not, it's only scary by in the, in the very most general, you know, in a most basic sense, you just know you're being, you're being led to something that's going to be scary. Right. Well, I think this might be a high concept thing, but I think as humans tend to equate memories and emotions very strongly together. So if you have a strong emotion with a strong memory, that's going to stick out to you much longer. That's why like in commercials, you want to make an impression as quickly as you can. You only have 30 seconds. So if you can get either the emotion of happiness or laughter or sadness, mm -hmm. you know, everyone remembers that uh, in the arms of the angel dog commercial, because it evoked a very strong emotion with everybody. Um, so I think that's what in media, um, what makes the longest impression, which, you know, I think every creator wants to do. It's also where you leave them, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then again, having the crypt keeper to underline, you know, to underline the, the moral as it were. Mm -hmm. um, it was just another, but I mean, you're absolutely right. Those are the, you know, in the in Bill Sadler at the end of that episode of episode one, Mary Ellen Trainer episode two, Pantoliano episode three. You know, all of them, you know, are at the end are you're really at a high, very heightened emotional state. Mm -hmm. And then not not to short short change episode six. I, I thought was you know at the time it I you know it was it was good. I certainly had nothing against it, but in looking back on it. It, I think, um, first of all, three hilarious, hilarious, accomplished performances. Mm -hmm. And in a funny way, it's almost a Tales from the Crypt riff on a sitcom, you know, <laughs> because, he, you know, it's clearly as opposed to all the other shows, I would say, are basically uh, realistic in their depiction of the of the uh, filmic reality. Mm -hmm. You know, you, that one you know, just intuitively from watching, you know, acres of television, that this one is occurring in a more sitcom, you know, a kind of, it's barely even back a lot. It's really more, you know, there, there could easily have been a live audience, you know, when you were making, you know, there, there wasn't, but that was the, you know, it has the look clearly shot on a stage mm -hmm. and, and, and all, and the, the, the performances are so funny. Um, without without becoming shticky or without becoming, you know, they're they're just funny. I'm not going to say without becoming anything. They're funny, and there's any number of moments where um, Mary Lambert's direction, you really think that one moment, maybe halfway through, she's talking to her husband, 
and she's talking to one of the pets. I mean, you're the complete, complete reversal of where, you know, bait and switch about where you think it's going. And, and you really kind of wonder, I think, as you know, as it's going on, ah, oh, is, is he, is he going to embalm her or what's going to happen to her? And then she, you know, turns the tables on him, you know, that giant ax or that giant mallet, whatever you want to call it, hammer, like Maxwell's silver hammer, you know, is going to be used on someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, and the ending, the ending image of him all stitched up kind of like, you know, um, is really just hilarious. I mean, and, and beautifully done, you know, so I think an interesting, again, riff on filmic styles, a very different, different filmic style, but totally fit within the ambit of what was Tales from the Crypt. You know, it was right, you know, completely in that ballpark, but very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hammer is definitely the, was it the Chekhov's gun? Shotgun on the wall in Act yeah. 1 is going to be used in, in Act 3. You, you know that's coming. I mean, right. um, but how it's going to be used, and it's not used until the very last, you know, the penultimate scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, the just wonderful, strange hilarity of seeing Emmett, Wall, M. Emmett Walsh you know, picking up the squirrel, talking about the number of bones in its in its feet, and and he clearly was very had a lot of affection. The character for all the the his his little creatures now, all of which were embalmed, and you see them in all kind of ghoulish, you know, or just taxidermed forms. Yeah, but it, was, it was very funny and very memorable. Yeah, it's interesting because this wasn't isn't one of my favorite episodes, but that you kind of conceptualized it as kind of a mirror twisted version of a sitcom and i think that kind of makes me appreciate it more like i think it would have been better it almost would have been better if they would put like a laugh track or a scream track or something underneath it to drive it home even more yeah Um, that definitely i think that might i mean yes that would have been a legit way to go but that would have been i would say too meta maybe yeah this one and this is again i i only felt this on reviewing it i did not particularly feel this, you know, probably in the beginning, uh, maybe I felt more about it the, the way that you just said, not one of your favorites, but, but looking back on it, it, it is every bit as good as the other ones. It's just different mm-hmm. and it takes out a different territory, but it's also completely true to the underlying material and to the genre and, but the characters, each of them, particularly the next door neighbor, I don't remember his name in the show. Roy. But, oh, he, he was yeah. just, it was so funny. Yeah. Um, and yet also rooted, you know, in you had real kind of, you could have real human sympathy and concern for, oh, poor Emmett Walsh. He's obviously like a, a weirdo, but he's, you know, he's just gotten, he just gotten reti- forcibly retired, forcefully retired. And his next door neighbor trying to bring him, you know, there was a lot of sort of human interactions within it, but that ultimately, that those are just set up for what we know is going to happen or what we, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know something's going to happen. And I thought it was a very successful show on its own terms. Right. So speaking of success, so what were the like expectations? What was the vibe before the show premiered? I, I think we felt we had, we all felt we had something special and, and it was something special for HBO. I mean, they'd done the hitcher. Mm-hmm. Or the Hitchhiker, I'm not sure which was the title, Hitcher or Hitchhiker. They were not doing a lot of original programming. Um, in fact, very little. And, and so this was represented, in my memory, kind of like a, a start, 
you know, to what became obviously gigantic juggernaut, you know, programming juggernaut. And I think uh, if I recall, but again, this, I would, I didn't have a chance to check this. And I have the feeling it got some kind of review in the New York Times. You know, it, it, it got some, it was, it received, it was received by, you know, credible tastemakers. Um, have you ever looked into that? What, what, it's, what kind of review? Um, no, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I can look that, yeah, I, I can look up some articles, but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm very curious again, because I wasn't old enough to really experience this all in real time. So I'm curious what the reaction was to like people just kind of bumming through HBO and saying, Oh, what's this? Well, I'm just looking up right here. Television review. Yeah. So it was, it was reviewed uh, June 26, 1991 review slash television tales from the crypt raises ratings for HBO. But, but here's a quote, but at least one form of horror is selling briskly these days. Just ask home box office. It's tales from the crypt series is back with new episodes and the ratings are hummings humming began a couple of years ago. You know, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really good article. Um, this, I think, is a, it came out with season two. And I, I have the feeling there may have been a season one comment also coming out of, you know, with Tales from the Dark Side. That thing never got any credibility anywhere, anyhow. And then this clearly was was on a, you know, a, a very different par. And, of right. course, the, the, the quality of the shows was superb. Yeah, I mean, if one thing that's evident from our conversation and from all the other, you know, stuff I've done with Tales of the Crypt is, you know, Tales of the Crypt kind of took everything that came before it. It took these great comic sources. It took shows like Tales of the Dark Side and Freddy's Nightmares and kind of took the best of the best, the cream of the crop, to kind of dist- and distilled it down into, you know, a show that, that is become enduring. It's taking these legendary directors. It's attracting excellent cast and excellent writers and producers and it's kind of the culmination of all the things that kind of came before it to make like kind of an ultimate version of of what it could be and the other thing to remember a lot real fidelity to the source material mm-hmm. like if if you go back and you know there's uh you know the i think it was all the four you know there was like tales from the crypt vault of horror shock suspense stories and I don't remember what the, I think there were four publications, if I recall. I think there were there three main ones, but yeah, they pulled Those from the three main ones, okay. We, we were very faithful to the source material without being, you know, like restricted by it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and, you know we, we felt like we had the room to do, you know, to, 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 because we didn't have like, no one was sitting there saying you have to follow this or follow that. But, you know, we really were basing it on a classic, classic source material and those stories were told in different ways than we would have told the story then if if someone just said, you know, uh, a story about a psycho Santa Claus and a woman who just murdered somebody. Right. Part of what was charming and fun um, about the series was that some of the, the, the building blocks really were, you know, the, the, the DNA of the underlying material really was permeated. Uh, and, and mixed in a really interesting way with the, the filmmaking styles and sensibilities of 1988 to 1991 or 90, whatever, you know, and that was, that was, that made it unique and also historically significant in the same way. I mean, or in a slightly separate, but related way, the creep show was an homage to tales from the crypt 
And that was that was a that preceded both Tales from the Dark Side and Tales from the Crypt, the original creep show. But you know, so we went back to the to the source and and there was really a lot of a lot of respect for the source, appreciation of the for the source. Sure. And to add another layer, this was coming at the end of the 80s, which was a huge decade for horror. But I think towards the end, there was just kind of oversaturation and not as much original uh, ideas. So this is kind of going back to the basics yeah. um, where things, you know, 80s was very much an excessive decade um, where things kept getting built up, 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 up and up. And then this is kind of like, OK, let's just go back and like, you know, kind of ushered in the 90s in a way. Yeah, but I, I also, I mean, there was none, I don't think there was any consciousness of anything like that at the well, time. No. Totally I just think it was, you know, you you pick up one of those comics and you read it and you just chuckle. And 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 there were all the filmmakers had, there were great mixtures of of humor, of, of comedy and darkness. And, and the, a certain, you know, they all had come up in Hollywood and there was, you know, it was a twist, an ability to twist around, like the, if there was a classic, well, you have to, can you really identify with the villain? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was a chance to just sort of do something that was in its own, you know, in its own, its own sandbox that was, but yet was true to those originals that were, you know, were really pretty groundbreaking at the time. Do you have any favorite episode moments uh, that we haven't touched on in season one? The stories, each of them, again, in their own flavor and their own their own storytelling style with their own directors and their own casts. You know, e- each one really had a, a certain flavor that I really felt played well, even, you know, this far after the fact. I mean, are they dated? I don't think, I mean, okay, hairstyles have changed. You know, <laughs> that's that perhaps, you know, there are some things like that you can look at, but I, I have it literally, I could probably make a list of 100 moments that I would consider incredibly, incredibly, they made it incredible, make an incredible impression on me, impression on me. But I'll just start with literally the first episode of what was season one, which I mentioned before, Walter Hill, the, the opening of the man who was death. That was just, I mean, just a magnificent piece of filmmaking. Right. You know? But they each one of them I could and then I, I could, you know, I could point to 10 other things in each one of the others, including and nine others or plus or minus in Walters. But great, great filmmakers, really great people, amazing collaborators to have an opportunity to, to work with that level of director storytellers was just, you know, an opportunity of a lifetime. Let's move on a little bit to some of your later uh, career moments uh so how'd you get involved with jumanji back when i was doing tail and all these things are you know there's a long lineage to a lot of these things back when i was doing after i'd done season one of tales from the dark side and we were always looking for new material i had i had read uh chris van allsberg's some of chris van allsberg's books uh because david vogel who who produced as i said the first episode of Tales from the Dark Side and it had been the exec in charge of production of the first season had gone on to do am- uh, to amazing stories with Steven Spielberg. He'd left and I, I was, I stayed, you know, since then stayed behind. So I was saying, oh, uh, Chris Van Allsburg, maybe he'd be interested in writing a Tales from the Dark Side. So totally out of the, I wrote it, I contacted his publisher and his publisher was like, yeah, send us a letter. So I thought, yeah, right. I know where that ends up. 
So I just looked up uh, 401. He lived, I knew he lived in Providence from the book jacket. 401-555-1212. He was listed. I cold called him. He agreed to have lunch with me. I went up to Providence and we had a nice lunch. And we developed you know, the beginnings of a relationship. And then some years later, back in the probably in that same summer of 88, when I was in LA, I met Scott Kroof, who was at Interscope Pictures at that time. And I noticed on his wall, some of Chris Van Allsburg's pictures, and we stuck up a, struck up a conversation and that led us to a, a mutual interest in Chris. And together uh, we, that is Interscope, um, which was then a super successful film producer. And, and I, we developed a pitch based on Jumanji because the, the publisher had never agreed to license any options or rights to any of his books. But they gave us kind of the Herculean, like the tasks of Hercules, like come up with a pitch, come up with writers, come up with a pitch, sell it to a studio, get a studio interested. And at that point, we'll consider it. So we had to do all this without even having an option in place. Um, but we did. And eventually we, we pitched it to Goober Peters, who were then at, at Columbia Pictures. And literally two days later, we were on the Sony jet with Peter Goober meeting with Chris Van Allsburg and his publishers, and they they agreed to option the, the book. Wow. And then um, how is it working with Robin Williams? Oh, I mean, just That's totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, just a uh, lovely guy, incredibly funny, you know, just um, uh, amazing, great. Mm-hmm. And then how, um, how did the new series come about, the newer movies? Well, um, in terms of series, what do you mean? Well, the, the two newest movies. Oh, they, I, well, you know, there had been discussions about rebooting it at various points. And it, it just, you know, the way things, so the time was right. There were, we'd, had, we'd done earlier versions of reboots that, or reconceptions of it that, that didn't quite come together. And this was just a really good idea. My producing partner on the, on the first reboot, Matt Tolmack, who's gone on to produce the second one, I, I executive produced the second, uh, the 2019 version. You know, there was a great pitch mm-hmm. developed. Jake Kasdan, t- totally great job. And obviously the actors uh, nailed it 100%. And we also, we, but we did, we did um, want to have it fit within the kind of universe of the first movie. Very different, but, you know, it, it sprang from the same ending. You know, the, the, uh, the game on the beach um, and that was then the start. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no, I took my kids to see that. It was, they, they really liked um, they, were, they really liked the movie. So it's great to be able to um, share that experience yeah. that I had as a kid with my kids now. Yeah, and I think one of the big concerns on the, and when the when the 2017 Welcome to the Jungle was first announced, there was lots of cries of "Oh my God, my childhood is being you know I don't know what were violated, <laughs> whatever." But then I think when they saw that we really were respectful, you know, and, and wasn't just like tearing apart the old car for parts, that it was something different and new and fun and people loved it, you know, which was very, very satisfying. Mm-hmm. And then I, I have to ask you about Mr. Holland's Opus, because that's that's one of my personal favorite movies. Great. And I and I grew up I was living in Portland at the time. Oh, you're kidding. Well, it was it grew out of it was an Interscope movie. And I had been, I was partners with them on Jumanji and I had done, they knew that I also had a lot of experience in addition to being a so-called creative producer, 
I also had a lot of experience as in, as a line producer type, you know, pr physical producer. And so they, uh, and they, you know, I was looking to segue into movies. And first I did some reshoots of the air up there. I supervised uh, for them. They were, that went well. I, I knew them all very well, all the Interscope execs. And then when they were developing Holland's Opus, they asked if I wanted to produce it or, you know, co technically co-produce and production manage, but, you know, and it was, it was something that took a while, a little while to come together, but, you know, Steve Herrick just did a great job and Richard Dreyfus, and the whole experience, you know, we were able to, we went up to Portland, I guess it was what, the summer of 94, I think. I think it, I think it was the summer of 19. Yeah, it came out 95. So yeah, I was seeing yeah, using a school. So it'd be there in the summer. And we just, it was one of those kind of, I mean, not, not when I say this, there was no lack of difficulty. It was extremely difficult, but it was also, you'd say, one of those charmed experiences where despite all the difficulties, and they were many, 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 the combination of story, casting, music, the whole thing was truly magic, you know? And, and the moment when Richard Dreyfus steps into the auditorium at the end, he had no idea what was gonna be behind those doors. You know, as he was in the hallway and we did, and when he, and so we had, you know, we just, the whole, the whole room was filled with people. You know, they were just people who were, wanted to be part of a movie and just sort of see it. And when the door opened and he walked in, the entire room just erupted. And you can see it, you can see it in the movie on his face of just melding of beyond reality. It was just like the character was, the actor was experiencing this moment, I think as a character, and when you see as he goes down the, the aisle, the people who had never, had never really knew nothing about the movie, but understood what the moment was, just turning to him and with love and appreciation and everything, it was just, I mean, literally Grips and Gaffer, Grips were kind of getting tearful backstage at that moment. It was, uh, it was really um, just, uh, totally you know it's a, a fabulous film it really holds up yeah i mean every time i watch that movie that scene just like just even hearing you talk about it just makes me like missed out oh, i mean it was and there were so many so many i mean that's a whole you know like a whole podcast on mr holland's opus you know would be not a whole podcast but an episode it's there's just so many layers to it and the music and some of the scenes you know that that to think some of those scenes that were the scene where Mr. Holland uh, says that um, Beethoven, you know, uh, about being deaf, you know, and that his camera, big crane shot that comes around to like a big shot right on his eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just stunning filmmaking. Um, but at the heart of it was was also a great, you know, great music. Uh, Steve Herrick did it. We did a great job, you know, he and we picking the music and then integrating it into the um, into the storyline. Okay. Well, not, I have to watch that movie this weekend. <laughs> it's just it's really, it's really, really, it, it holds up, you know, mm -hmm. really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the ending is truly, you know, Glenn Headley, God bless her, sad, you know, no longer with us. Amazing performance. Mm -hmm. uh, all Everyone in it, you know, amazing performances and the, you know, really, really, really great. Um, and I worked with Steve 20 years later on uh, the great Gilly Hopkins, um, which was also a good film. Um, he's a very, very good director. Mm -hmm.
Well, we're running short on time. So I just yep. want to get a couple of um, my fun questions in. Yep. I think you'll appreciate it uh, to wrap things up. So as we all know, famously in the very first episode, William Sadler goes to a diner and orders a cheese sandwich. So if you were ordering a hamburger or grilled cheese, what kind of cheese would you want to be on that uh, on that item? Uh, I guess cheddar. Cheddar? Yep. Smoked, aged, white. Good, good sharp cheddar. Sharp cheddar. There we go. Get a little bite. Maybe with some bacon or some ham, but you know, good, good sharp cheddar cheese. I'm a, I like a good, a good grilled cheese sandwich. There we go. All right. And then our kind of wrap up question, you know, this is dads from the crypts. Um, you know, we love to give advice to dads or parents or, you know, as a mentor um, to people. Um, so what advice would you give as a parent, as a mentor um, that you'd want to impart to our audience? Well, I'll take this opportunity to, you mentioned interest in the Arnold Schwarzenegger episode of Tales from the Crypt. There's a great moment in when we were making, the, when we were shooting the first Crypt Keeper episodes, it was a Saturday in the studio. And because it was a Saturday, my, my kids came to the studio with me, with some friends, uh, Alex, uh, with, some, with some friends of theirs. And they were sitting around a conference room um, watching TV you know, it's an animated cartoon or something like that. Um, Willie and Alex Chatham were, the, were their friends who were old friends of, uh, the kids of old friends of ours from New York. And the door opened to the conference room and Arnold Schwarzenegger was there. The kids took one look at him and they dove under the table and he turned to me and he said, Tithla, no discipline. <laughs> wow. How's that for a wrap up? That is great. Bill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a pure joy. Um, and thank you again for agreeing to come back to talk about season two and, you know, wherever else, wherever, wherever else we go with this. Um, are there any projects you're working on that you want to plug or any, you know, pot causes or anything you I'm want to? I'm working on a bunch of, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like talking about stuff before it happens. Mm -hmm. You know, just, it's, you know, as a producer, the, you know, it's like you're kind of like a farmer. Many seeds are planted and only some sprout. Sure. <laughs> and then of the ones that sprout, even fewer grow into really viable plants. So, um, but I am working on a bunch of stuff, including, you know, a number of projects with my long, uh, my longstanding creative partner and friend, Chris Van Allsburg, some really great stuff. So more on that, you know, Anon. Okay, well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I appreciate your time and, uh, you know, revisiting these great memories. Well, thank you. It was really fun. And, and I, I, I always knew I loved working on the show, but revisiting the memories and, and taking another look at the work was really, really, really fun. And so I just say, you know, to, to Joel, to Dick Donner, Bob Zemeckis, Walter Hill, David Geiler. What an opportunity. You know, thank you. Okay. And we appreciate everyone for listening. We'd really appreciate it if you give us a rating review on iTunes and leave us a rating on Spotify. And with that, I thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypts. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should watch. But be careful what you ask for. 
You may get it. Ha 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 ha.